Welcome to Course Stories, produced by the instructional design and new media team of EdPlus at Arizona State University. In this podcast, we tell an array of course design stories alongside other ASU Online designers and faculty. On today's course story, we really want them to move away from thinking about like the five paragraph generic academic essay and to really engage with writing assignments where they are making knowledge about topics that are interesting to them. So they're the ones that kind of steering their learning in a lot of ways by doing independent research on things that are important to them and their communities. So our curriculum is really focused on community-engaged writing and research. We want to prepare students to be 21st century digital communicators. Now, back in 2015, this sounded a little more radical than it does almost 10 years later, because now we're, we're almost a quarter of the way into the 21st century. But what I'm mean by that is to really be engaged with digital writing experiences. Hi, I'm Mary Loader, an instructional designer from ASU Online. I'm Elizabeth Blythe, a senior instructional designer at Arizona State University. I'm Ricardo Leon. I'm a media specialist at the same place. Yeah, we work together. Let's get on with the show. Okay. Welcome to season five of Course Stories featuring me, Ricardo Leon, and Mary Loader. And Lizzie Blythe. And my new last name. And Michael Miller. (laughs) Welcome, everybody. What are we here to talk about today? Oh, my gosh. So many wonderful things came up in that conversation. We're here to talk about the writing composition courses. Is that the right way to refer to these? So I think technically they're first year composition if we're going to look at the, the catalog, but the collection of courses is called the Writer's Studio. Ooh. Yeah. And they, they call it that, the Writer's Studio, because it is a process-oriented model, which we'll hear a lot about. But they really wanted to set it up more like a artist studio where the work is never done and you're there working with a mentor rather than an expert. And so that's really kind of the reason why they, they chose that title, the Writer's Studio. Ooh, intentionality. I like it. So who are the individuals that we spoke to? Yeah, so we had Dr. Michelle Stuckey, and she is the program coordinator. So she is the head honcho of everything within the writer studio. And lovely as a human being and Ugh. like accessibility minded. And I just love her. Yeah, she has been a mentor for me since 2016. She's the one who brought me to Ed Plus when I graduated. She said, hey, there's this position called a success coach. I think you'd be really good at it. At the time, I was a store manager for Starbucks and was pretty happy there. Looked at it and I was like, spot on. So she's the one who brought me to Ed Plus. She wrote my recommendation letters for my graduate degrees. Just, I mean, awesome mentor, awesome friend. Wait, before we go any further, Michael, who are you? Oh, yeah. Hi, I'm Michael. So I'm a <laughs> instructional designer and academic success and retention specialist on the learning initiatives team at Ed Plus. So I do a lot of weird, random things. We kind of mishmash some jobs together to create my role, but I get to support Liz, who is the primary instructional designer for these courses, and do a little bit of that instructional design work. But then what the learning initiatives team really does is a lot of times when we think about course design, you think about curriculum and you think about the user experience of the online course itself. But there's so many other things that impact the student's experience. And so what my team tries to do is partner with all the different units and departments and individuals across the university, and especially at EdPlus, to really create a system of support for these students that honestly, the students may not even know about or may not even be aware of of uh, how we're trying to support them within these courses. And I know I know you, Michael. You were on my Hack Day team. Yep. And you wrote this really great script for a video yep. about schooling in the future. And there was aliens and all sorts of other fun things. So I'm not surprised that you have such a strong writing background. I was actually going to say that when 
I heard them talking about like the course itself and the value that you had, which you guys will hear it in a second. I was like, yeah, story checks out. Michael's one of the best communicators I've ever met. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I was going to say, it's a really incredible opportunity to be an instructional designer getting to work with the Lit team, which has the greatest name. It's the only yeah. reason why I'm like so mad about them being a team because they've got just like the coolest team name. I want to be Team Lit, but well, neither what's here weird, there. We used to be the Learning Experience and Student Success Team, which is LESS. I'm like, <laughs> well, that's not a great acronym. So yeah, yeah no, Lit yeah. is definitely a step up, right? The yeah. Yeah. There. Lit, lit. From LESS to LIT. Yeah, Yeah, it's just team lit. I love it. But it's so great getting to work with Michael from the lit team because it helps kind of take focus off of um, data for me. Like I have kind of like a data specialist and somebody who is really helping coordinate managing a lot of the student resources that we end up needing and helping us get connected with the success coaches and getting to hear those firsthand student experiences. Something that, you know, as an instructional designer, we don't really have a lot of access to students and student information and data in that way. So it's really great to have a team like that to work with. Um, and then Michael's just also a really fantastic designer and he's just so much fun to work with. So he, it's, it's, a, it's a partnership made in heaven. Feeling is mutual. And you'll hear he's a great interviewer as well. So <laughs> who else Who else do we have uh, on the show? Yeah, so we also had uh, Dr. Zachary or Zach Wagner. He is the coordinator for English 101. So he kind of manages everything, manages all the faculty uh, and everybody that's up within the English 101 first year composition course. We're joined by John Buckley. Uh, he's a an, instructor and faculty member for English 101, uh, but he is also the coordinator for the writing mentors, which I'm sure we will be talking about here in a little bit. And then last but not least, we had Sean Tingle join us, and he is a faculty member for English 105, which is the advanced first-year composition course. All the way out in Philadelphia. Yeah. Okay, so without further ado, let's uh, do it. Hi, I am Michael Miller, and I am a instructional designer and academic success and retention specialist at EdPlus. I work on the learning initiatives team, which supports our 35 highest enrolling online courses at ASU. And I am joined today by some of my old friends. Let's start with Dr. Michelle Stuckey. Thanks, Michael. I'm Michelle Stuckey, and I am a clinical associate professor and writing program administrator for ASU's online first-year composition program, The Writer's Studio, which is housed in the School of Applied Sciences and Arts in the College of Integrative Sciences and Arts here at ASU. Awesome. Thanks for joining us, Michelle. My pleasure. And we also have Dr. Zach Wagner. Hi, Michael. I'm the English 101 course coordinator for the Writer Studio, and I've been working in administration of writing programs for a couple of decades now. Thanks for being here, Zach. Sure thing. Next up, we have John Buckley. Hi, Michael. Yeah, my name is John Buckley. I teach English 101 courses in the Writer Studio, and I also coordinate our writing mentor program. Uh, our writing mentors are course-embedded peer tutors who provide support to our students and faculty. I started out as a, a faculty associate in the Writer Studio. And, and worked my way up to, uh, you know, teaching and administering. Awesome. Thanks for being here, John. And last but certainly not least, we are joined from afar by Sean Tingle, who is not only a good uh, co-worker here, but a good friend of mine as well. So, Sean, welcome. Hey, I'm Sean. Thanks for having me even from far away. I've been an instructor with the Writer's Studio for, I think, eight years now. I'm not quite sure on the numbers at this time, but uh, around there. And I've also taught in English 101 and 102 in the past, uh, but I teach 105 now. Yeah, we're happy to have you. So I am thrilled to have this conversation with everyone today. So I 
often tell people that I grew up in the writer's studio. So I have a non-traditional path towards a degree program. I came to ASU through the partnership with Starbucks in 2016. And the very first online course that I ever took was English 105, Advanced First Year Composition with Dr. Michelle Stuckey. And what was so great about that experience, I mean, it's an awesome course, very high level, was not what I was expecting at all, but a phenomenal experience. And at the end of that course, Dr. Stuckey reached out to me and invited me to apply for a writing mentor position. Uh, we'll hear a lot more about the writing mentors a little bit later, but it's basically a peer-embedded tutor working within these first-year composition courses. So after that experience, it really reignited my passion for education. I had spent over a decade in different retail management and just was finding myself unfulfilled, but without a degree, not really able to go anywhere else, right? So with that position, I was able to work with the writer studio, work very closely with really everybody here. So I was a writing mentor for John Buckley at first, then for Sean for a few years. I worked under Zach Wagner when I was in English 101. And then of course, with Dr. Michelle Stuckey, we've had a couple of even independent studies down the road and things like that. So really, really grateful for everyone to be here and to talk about your courses today. So what I thought we would do is maybe start with Michelle, if you would like to kind of kick us off and talk a little bit, just high level, what is the program? What's different about it? What's special about it? And what's all this high impact verbiage that we keep talking about? Sure, Michael. Well, that's a lot. So um, <laughs> let me just give you a, a kind of a brief overview of what, what we do in the writer Studio. So in the writer Studio, we provide the first year writing requirement to all students who are enrolled specifically in online degree programs. And so, you know, when Michael started way back when, and we might have had about 5,000 students a year, and now we're pushing 17,000 students. And so um, as ASU Online's program has grown, so has enrollment in our program, which has really pushed us. I mean, we're at ASU, right? So it's pushed us to innovate new ways of meeting students' need, meeting the demands of of large enrollment um, online programming, and maintaining um, quality, engaging, challenging experiences for students in writing courses. So I think what sets our program apart, Michael, as you asked, is a, is a few things. One, you know, we you know, like many writing classes, we want to give students an opportunity to develop their own transferable writing process. So when they leave our classes, they're confident about the next writing assignment they tackle and the next class they take. But also that we want to give them skills and practices and habits that they can take with them to writing they do in other areas of their lives. That's been one of our core goals to help students really develop the skills they need to be successful communicators at ASU and beyond. And I think a couple other things I think is unique and sometimes surprising for students who take our classes. One is that we really want them to move away from thinking about like the five paragraph generic academic essay and to really engage with writing assignments where they are making knowledge about topics that are interesting to them. So they're the ones kind of steering their learning in a lot of ways by doing independent research on things that are important to them and their communities. So our curriculum is really focused on community-engaged writing and research. And then three, we want to prepare students to be 21st century digital communicators. Now, back in 2015, this sounded a little more radical than it does almost 10 years later, because now we're, we're almost a quarter of the way into the 21st century. 
But what I mean by that is to really be engaged with digital writing experiences. And so over the course of our program, our students get exposed to all sorts of digital composing. So they create digital portfolios using things like Google Sites. They compose infographics, which is a real genre that they might engage with in the workforce. They compose PSAs and advocacy ads. They're working with bringing text and image together, which I think, you know, that they're already doing in so many ways in their lives, but they're really seeing how to do it in a deliberate and thoughtful way. So those are those are a few of the, the things I think that, that set us apart. Yeah, that's a great overview. Thanks, Michelle. And I think for me, you know, English 105 was one of the most impactful courses that I have ever taken. And it's one of those courses where the skills that I learned are skills that I use every single day, whether it's writing a business email, writing a text to a friend, or I mean, I'm creating infographics, graphics all the time. So those skills, I think, are so great to not only prepare students for, you know, two, four years of academic work that they're going to be doing. These are real world skills that are directly applicable into so many different professional settings. So I think it's a great course. We were excited to partner with you for a three-year redesign. Michelle, can you talk a little bit about some of your priorities going into this redesign process? Sure, Michael. What is challenging for us as the folks who are designing curriculum is to think about how to create classes that can meet a really broad range of learners, the meet, meet the needs of a really broad range of learners. So we might have first-time, first-year students in a class with somebody who has been working professionally in doing writing professionally for 20 years and who has just never finished their degree. And those those students are going to have a really broad range of real world experience, comfort in educational setting, comfort levels in educational settings, right? Um, and so how do we design curriculum that is going to be engaging and meaningful and challenging, but still offers a pathway to success for all the possible learners who might be coming into our program? And so what really got us thinking was we have a, a constantly changing demographic of students. Let's take a deep dive into who's successful in our program. Who is it? And let's think about what what changes we need to make to include right um, all the possible students and provide all a path a pathway to success in our program. Michelle, would this be a good time to maybe bring up the learning contract? Yeah, that's a great segue. You know, John, I don't know if you want to talk about it, but right before we started this three year redesign, we had gone through a, a year long process of developing and implementing what we call a learning contract. It's a mode of assessment based on contract grading, and that was our first step toward really thinking about how to expand equity and inclusion in our classes uh, related to assessment. And so what we did was really develop a more holistic grading structure in which students were basically being assessed on their own individual growth. And so we believe that the more students write, the better they get at writing. And we really wanted to find a way to just encourage students to just write without being afraid or overly focused on points and how many points they're going to get or lose potentially. And so just giving them a path to just get started and to reduce some of that anxiety that prevents a lot of students from, from just, from just writing. And so that was one of our first steps we made to kind of think about equity and expand equity in our classes. And this is Zach. Just to jump in on what Michelle said, historically, students do have, and not just students, but people in general, have a lot of anxiety related to writing. There's a lot of stress. There's a lot of doubt. There's a lot of insecurity. Uh, and that's because writing historically for folks has been very product-based. 
that they're asked to produce something, and then they're never helped with the process of getting to that product. And so, of course, uh, if that's academically, uh, you can see how that has played out over many decades. But so what we've tried to do with our learning contract is take the emphasis off of the product and put the emphasis on the process. So there are many small writing assignments that contribute towards working towards some product, I suppose, down the line, but that's not our emphasis. We care about the stages along the way, the steps, the habits, and the skills that you learn. And so the learning contract allows us to do that focus on process in a way that's much less stressful for students. Yeah, I love that. And I think, you know, as a perfectionist myself, that learning contract just, again, takes some of that weight off of a student's shoulders. And, you know, Zach, you were talking about kind of that process-oriented model. That's a great way, I think, to really frame the writer studio is it really is all about process, not product. And I remember, Zach, something that you've often said, that there is no such thing as a final draft, right? It's always opportunity for revision. And so, again, I think that mentality really is infused so deeply into the curriculum of the writer studio in those first-year composition courses. Yeah, we actually changed the terminology of our courses specifically based on that. We used to have a rough draft and a final draft of our, our writing projects, and we've, we've changed those terms to feedback draft and revised draft, knowing that, you know, yeah, you've done your revision, nothing is ever final. So we, we want to take that pressure off students as well. And the language we use to communicate with students is super important. So, Zach, why don't you talk a little bit about English 101 and some of the changes that you wanted to prioritize and what you've seen and maybe how that's impacted students in your courses? Well, so as Michelle said, we have seen an enormous kind of change, uh, always in flux change in our student population, and I expect that will continue. So our redesign is really uh, kind of designed to be as flexible as possible to meet a wide range of different students where they're at while always also being very proactive and intentional in thinking about high impact on our students. We want to retain our students. We want to engage our students. We want our students to persist at ASU all the way through to graduation. And so trying to redesign the 101 curriculum to do that has been challenging, but also very rewarding. Uh, we've always been process focused, but we've kind of, I think, and since this rebuild, focused even more on how to be flexible with the assignment design. We do have one large project that students are working on, or two, depending on the session and depending on the student population. And so inside of those large projects, we have many small invention assignments to help them complete the steps of the thinking and writing that's going to be necessary. So we've really redesigned those to be community embedded, as Michelle said, to focus on the students' individual communities that they value, and that could be a wide range of community-related uh, topics, and to provide students with agency to select from within their communities the topic that best fits their own interests in relationship to whatever the the prompt or the topic that we've selected for that semester is. And so that's one of the main ways we've been proactively uh, revamping. We've also uh, decided on a very heavy focus in English 101 on primary research as opposed to secondary research. Many, many students are very familiar with secondary research of some type, having had other educational experiences before English 101, but very few students are familiar with primary research. But primary research is really where you can learn uh, as a creator, as a composer, as a writer, to gain agency in the topic. You have to go out, for example, and conduct interviews, perhaps, or you have to go out and conduct field research uh, if you're doing observation out in the real world somewhere. So a focus on primary research uh, with the topic that the student can kind of pick to their own interests in their own community has really helped us see a rise in student engagement and retention. Yeah, this is uh, really something different from online classes too. And Michael, even, even before you mentioned that your English 105 class was not what you expected. And that's what we hear from all of our students is that our classes is not what they expect. You know, it's an online class. Sure, I'm going to be in front of my computer, peck away at my keyboard, um, but that's not really what we want. And that's not what ASU wants. Um, we want our, our students to be 
you know, embedded and engaged with their community. So the, the assignments that we have in both of our classes, 101, 102, even 105, they get out of their chairs, out of, out of in front of their computer screen and out into the real world and, you know, really engaging with their community. Yeah. And I think that's one of the really special things. And one of the things like you just said, John, that was surprising to me is you see English 101 as a student and you think, oh, I'm going to read some poetry and I'm going to read Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and then I'm going to write a critical essay, right? And then we walk into these courses in the digital sense and they say, no, what are you interested in? What are your community problems? How can you work to solve them, right? And it's so cool to be able to have that autonomy uh, and to take responsibility for that writing, right? And I think as a student, it increased my engagement, right? And I learned things about my local community that I would never have thought of, right? So I think that's a great approach. And Zach, with 101, in the first year of the redesign, you had an additional challenge with the elimination of writing across the curriculum 101, that course. I think your enrollment doubled or tripled in one year. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Right. So writing across the curriculum, which we know as is WAC 101, was a course that certain students could uh, test into or opt into that would they would take prior to English 101. And there's a long history of that at ASU and at other institutions for students who maybe aren't had, haven't had enough practice, aren't as comfortable with where they want to be with their writing before starting English 101. So the elimination of that course now places all the students who before had either tested into a situation or pre-selected by themselves into a situation where they didn't feel ready or comfortable with English 101. But yet now all of those students are going to be in one, English 101 going forward. So that just broadened the population for English 101 uh, even more than we had already anticipated it doing. So the redesign has tried to account for the needs of that particular audience as well. And I think what is a huge success is that even with that massive increase in enrollment, we still saw an increase in ABC rates and a decrease in withdrawal rates. And that is massive when we're including that other population. Before we move on from curriculum, I'd want to ask Sean, can you tell us a little bit about English 105 and what's different about 105 compared to 101 and 102? So uh, we take the same kind of concepts from 101 and 102 and put it all into one quick course. So it's a little bit of a challenge. And we tend to get students who are maybe in Barrett Honors College or who have high test scores for their entrance exams and so forth. But it's really interesting to kind of see students who want to get their first year writing courses out of the way really quickly. So sometimes we have challenges there too. you know, students who think they're going to get it, you know, get through really quickly, and they just want to get it done with. So bringing them into that challenge of engaging with their communities and really thinking hard about you know, those critical concepts versus, oh, I thought I was just going to sit down and read a book and write about it. Or I thought I was going to do the same thing I'm used to in high school in my honors, you know, AP courses. I thought I was going to do more of the same. So that's been a pretty big challenge that I've experienced. But once they get past that, hopefully they accept that challenge and take, take it on. I've seen a lot of success with students who have found it really rewarding and empowering too. So a lot of our students have gone on to reach out to their real real world communities and tried to make those differences actually happen or engage with others to inform them. Yeah, that's great. And I was going to say, I remember, you know, I love kind of the end of sessions when you get to share some of the you know student stories that you've heard or that you've encountered throughout, you know, and again, what they are going to go on and do with that project for some of them. I think it's just so powerful that we're able to do that in a first year composition course. We would not be expected, right? So kudos to all of you for that. Definitely. We really take to heart ASU's charter as well as ASU's design aspirations, especially social embeddedness. And so, you know, we've really tried to design a curriculum that introduces first year students to the ASU's goals and to the values that we place here in the ASU community on making an impact beyond the university. 
which isn't to say that the changes we've made that we believe are in students' best interests are easier for students necessarily. Uh, as Sean was saying, the expectations students have of what they're going to do in our courses is often radically different than what we are actually asking them to do. And there can be resistance to that. There can be stress about that. There can be uncertainty about that. But I think, as Sean said, once we get over that with students, once they realize what this course is and why it is what it is, there's the opportunity for real deep learning. And I think most students will appreciate that. Absolutely. And I think one of the great things that y'all have done is include several pauses for reflection throughout the course, right? Because sometimes in these seven and a half week online courses, it is just nonstop from day one until the, the very end. Students are just go, go, go. And they never have time to really stop and reflect on their learning. And that's something that y'all have built into the curriculum that, again, I think is just really special. Thanks, Michael. Actually, you know, redesigning how we approached reflection, Zach was in charge of that, actually. You know, three years of working on this, it, it, it's almost difficult to remember all that we did over the last three years. But our first year, we really decided we wanted to, to think differently about how we were engaging students in reflections. And for those of you who are maybe new to the term reflection, you know, educational psychology shows that building in these moments for students to stop and take stock of their learning and really engage in what we call metacognition does a lot for solidifying that learning so that students retain more of what they learned when they have those moments. And so prior to our our course redesign, a lot of our reflecting was really focused on the learning outcomes and asking students to kind of demonstrate their learning of each of the outcomes that we had articulated for them in our courses. And as part of this redesign, we started having conversations about student agency because we felt as a program that our priority was to give students agency as learners and that the reflections were a vehicle for them to tell us and show us what they learned. But we were also constraining them by limiting them to only discussing the outcomes. And so one of the projects Zach works on, I want him to be able to speak to it if he wants, was to really think about designing reflections that were holistic and that gave students prompting questions to reflect on and to really set, set the agenda for their own learning yeah, Michelle said it exactly right. What we did was we vastly simplified what we were asking students to do in our reflections with basically two components on the reflections we're having them do, no matter if that is a reflection at the beginning or a reflection at the middle or a reflection at the end of the term. And one of those two things was we asked students to simply look back. What about the experience you've just had, whether or not it was the first project or this first section of the course? What about it was challenging for you? What about it was surprising? What about it did you feel confident in? Which of the habits and skills and processes and practices that we had you work on were uh, easier for you, which were harder, just to reflect back over the uh, the short burst of time that we just had been working? And then the second half is to simply look forward. Now that you've reflected back, look ahead, uh, prospect, if you will. Well, what do you want to work on in this next section of the course? Which habits do you think are strengths for you, which are challenging you right now? Which of the practices that we're asking you to practice are also more challenging than others? And so just a basic looking back and a basic looking forward in a reflection, students had great freedom then to select uh, and tailor it to their own uh, work in their own kind of metacognitive space. And I think that approach really couples that metacognitive reflection with transfer, right? And the ability to think about how am I going to take these skills that I've been working on for these last few weeks and how else can I apply those, right? In my other classes, in my career, in my community. And so I love how you've paired that looking back and looking forward. Yeah. Reflection is crucial to transfer. Uh, all studies suggest that that's a key component to transferring skills or practices or habits. And so glad you said that, Michael. Thanks. Sure. Yeah. 
And with these changes, I've noticed personally with my students that they are so sincere and for better or worse, extremely honest. So <laughs> um, it's really nice to see them just taking that agency and running with it. That's great. Okay, so let's just stop for a moment and call what's happening out because it's important people know. When we're talking about student agency, it kind of goes hand in hand with the process that they're implementing around students choosing which communities they engage with and how they engage with their work and their assessments. Those are very universal design for learning approaches. Um, So I just wanted to highlight universal design for learning. It's a fabulous opportunity for you to take an intentional look at your course and find out how you can improve the experience from the student's perspective. How can you make it more learner-centered? From my perspective with UDL, what we're trying to get at is a more authentic learner experience. And so I know right now we talk about it a little bit in the episode, but chat GPT and generative AI, and you know, there's so many concerns about, oh, are students going to be cheating and how are they going to get around my assessments and things like that. Universal design for learning a lot of times is able to get around those sort of stop gaps, right? Because you are creating authentic assessments for students and meeting them where they are. And so again, I think not only is it a much more impactful learning experience for the student, but when we think about it from the faculty perspective, and again, kind of those fears about generative AI, I think, again, UDL is a way to decrease some of those concerns. Yeah, and from a design perspective as well, this course between working with you, working with some of the other great resources at ASU and the faculty that have been um, helping design these courses, we've been able to provide kind of hit the three pillars of UDL through multiple means of engagement. Students really get a lot of opportunities to choose how and when they learn. Um, Multiple means of representation in terms of how we present content, both in video. uh, We have some podcast kind of forms out there We have uh, an interactive textbook, just so many ways for the students to be engaged with the course content. And then in terms of action expression, I'd say that that's really well covered in the profile projects and the Google site project where students really get that hands-on experience and get to create on their own and get to define how they represent themselves kind of in this world through that project. Yeah, they really do hit the multiple means of engagement vein of UDL, like specifically around the relevance and value of the experience for the student because they're picking where they're engaging. And then the sustained effort and persistence around their self-reflections and like, what are the skills you're going to be working on now? And they choose them. And I mean, they're creating their own assessment structure based on what's their baseline and then getting graded based on their own success, not on some you know, general criteria that's in a rubric that doesn't actually have personal value to them. Yeah, not only that, but I think that as Zach and everyone here kind of mentioned at one point or another, uh, these courses are hard for a lot of students. There's a lot of anxiety and challenges that come up with your first year writing. There's a lot of a lot of negative feelings that students pick up from writing in previous like lifetimes and experiences. So having that as an avenue um, really can also help increase that motivation, especially when you can see how this is going to help you, not just in an academic career sense, but in like my actual career and how it's going to help me in my writing right now, today, in my Facebook posts, in my Twitters, in my, my exes, <laughs> uh, whatever it's called. Now. Identity crisis still. I don't know what to call I them know. either. <laughs> um, or, you know, my, um, if you're a NaNoWriMo kid, you know, uh, my, my NaNoWriMo, my uh, National Writing Month, Novel Writing Month thing cut all that out. (laughs) We're not cutting any of that out. But I do want to say like that's self-regulation under the guideline for engagement. Like that's one of the the ninth guideline, I think. And promoting 
their ability to do self-assessment, create coping skills. I mean, just intentionally be reflective and then action-oriented. And so part of that, too, is the multimodal opportunities that they have to mm-hmm. to go with assignments. So what uh, what is that? What are the what's the scope of that? What can a student turn in absolutely anything uh, as an assignment, or what 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 are the what are the limits there? You know, honestly, they can almost turn in just about anything. Mm-hmm. There is not a lot of limit. It is really up to the students on what they can do. There's very few guidelines, and they are very open ended, just to encourage that creativity from the student's point of view, um, and to really make sure that students have that opportunity to express themselves in whatever means uh, and representations or means of representation that matter most to them, and help get their point across. So it could be an all memed paper if you really want it to be. <laughs> well, then, uh, then how do you how do you grade something like that? Or are you are you hitting certain uh, criteria? Well, I I think one of the really important pieces of that is being intentional with what they're choosing, right? We don't want students to just give us a Microsoft Word document where they just copied and pasted a bunch of pictures in just because we told them to make it multimodal. We really want them to think about what is the impact that this image is going to have. So if I'm writing about you know, people who are experiencing homelessness in Phoenix, Arizona, I could choose a picture of a empty, dirty alley, right? Which we might associate with someone who is experiencing homelessness. And that could have an impact, right? But think about an image where you're looking into the face of a person, a human being who's experiencing that. That is the image that we want in your paper, right? And so those are the types of the the feedback that these faculty are going to be giving the students to help them really think about how do I be intentional with the pieces of media that I'm including to help really increase the rhetorical impact that I'm having with my audience. And that just is a more authentic assessment process, not only from the student's experience of creating the product through the process, but from the faculty's perspective, you're not giving the same feedback every time. It's a different experience every time. It's an authentic conversation for that individual student's success. And that's actually super meaningful, Mm -hmm. especially in a class that's at this scale. When one of the really cool things that they get to do in some of these courses is create a infographic or a public service announcement or an advocacy ad, right? And so one of the fun things that I get to do is I go to our success coaches and I actually train them about these first-year composition courses so that they can have more robust, effective conversations with their students to prepare them and coach them through those courses, right? And so one of the things that I always tell these coaches is, you know, your students may be like, why am I creating an infographic in a first-year composition course? This is not graphic design class, right? But think about the modern digital 21st century audience. Right? Are they going to read an eight-page academic paper or are they going to read a one-page infographic? Mm-hmm. It's the latter of the two, right? So we are arming our students not only how to be successful in the academic environment by writing APA-style papers, but we're also giving them that power and the ability to go out and communicate in a way that the the modern digital audience wants to receive information. Yeah, I think that that's my favorite part about these classes is that they do give you the skills and the information that you need to be a successful student in the academic field, but they give you this more immediate real-world writing experience in terms of, you know, the fact that you're going to need to write an email tomorrow for your job or create an infographic for your work. I mean, I think you and I make them all the time. (laughs) So that's a really relevant skill as well as creating the Google site for the portfolio, being able to communicate through not just written language, but also how you intentionally incorporate those images to help further support what you're trying to get across. That's very modern, very real. Very modern, very real. Though I like Frankenstein and poetry. Yeah, so <laughs> same. Okay, so before we switch gears away from curriculum, 
we got to talk about the the elephant in the room, right? Artificial intelligence and especially generative artificial intelligence. So in a first-year composition course, I can imagine that there might be some concern, some excitement, some fear, some trepidation, lots and lots of different feelings. What are y'all thinking about generative AI and how you see it potentially being used or not being used in your first-year composition courses? Wow, yeah, that is the elephant in the room. I think that everyone's talking about it. And believe it or not, it's only been a year, I think, since ChatGPT2, was it two initially, it launched? And a lot has already changed. And it's really become the focus of a lot of conversations about not just the teaching and learning of writing, but teaching and learning more broadly. So I think what we're talking about now is, you know, we definitely don't want to try to be an AI detector or um, the AI police because the cat is out of the bag. And so really, you know, the conversations that we're having programmatically are about how we can teach students how to use it as a partner, as a tool to improve their writing, but not as a substitution for the difficult thinking and learning that they need to do in all of their classes. Yeah. And I would say, given our process focus uh, I've never been stressed about AI since this has started. I'm more interested in seeing, as Michelle said, how it can work with and for our students in collaboration to help them generate ideas. I could see how perhaps uh, teachers or professors in other disciplines who are focused on products may have more anxiety about where does that product come from. But in a process-based course like ours, uh, it's more interesting than than scary, I would say. It's also really easy to tell when they have used those tools to do their writing for them. But I've approached the feedback the same way I would if they had approached their writing personally, but they didn't put a lot of effort into it. So you give the same type of feedback, please add more details or specifics here, especially with their reflections, because they're supposed to be really sincere. Some of them might try to use AI to write that for them. Uh, but then you're like, where are your specific personal examples and connections to this? Where are you transferring it in your own life? Because ChatGPT doesn't know those details. Um, and because they're writing about their personal communities, it's just such a complex process for them. Um, but I've also leaned into using it as a tool, such as you know something I read on Reddit. Uh, another professor said that they've used it to give their students a 24-7 tutor for their writing because they can put their, their work that they've already done and get quick feedback from a certain point of view. Here are some, some prompts you can try to get different types of feedback, depending on what you're looking for to improve on in your own work. So that's what I've kind of done with my students. And I've had some success with it this semester. Yeah, we're actually already kind of starting to pilot some, some of that stuff in our courses. And in the spring, we're going to be expanding some of that stuff to, to more, more sections, more students, um, Yeah, integrating things like ChatGPT and WordTune into assignments and asking students to honestly you know, tell us how they used it, what they thought, was it successful? And some interesting results so far across the board. Some students love it. Some students feel weird about using it. So it's not all good or all bad. It's, it's just something that's out there that we have to recognize and, and run with. In relationship to the writing conversation in AI, I would say to any teachers or administrators out there who are on the more stressed and, and negative side of uh, AI in this regard, I would say it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to evaluate what writing you're assigning, how you're teaching that writing, if you're teaching that writing to your students. So it's a good opportunity to revisit the assignments that uh, ask students to do writing in your courses. Yeah, I would say as writing teachers, we've always fashioned ourselves as more as coaches and partners in learning than as the old sage on the stage model. And I think what AI is going to really make outdated are things like people who give lectures and then assign scantrons because 
you know, students can quickly complete those exams, especially in online classes, right? They can look up the information on AI. They can put, input that into um, ChatGPT. And, and so how can, how can you really provide these meaningful learning experiences for students that treat them as partners in their own learning, right? That's really where, where we want to go and continue to go with students. I will say too, though, that, you know, I think anytime tools like this emerge, there's a, there's rightfully a lot of anxiety among faculty about how they might be forced to implement this or what expectations there might be around something like that. And I will say, you know, the conversations that I've had across ASU, the provost office has stressed that whatever we do with AI, the human will be at the center. And I really appreciate the emphasis that ASU has placed on that. And I think that in tandem with our new design aspiration related to principled innovation should be reassuring to a lot of us who may be feeling anxious about what this might mean for us in terms of class size or, you know, like AI teaching the class. Because I think we, you know, as Zach and, and John have said, this is a, an opportunity to really focus on the things that we love most about teaching and working with students. And it will give us a tool to do that in, in, a, in a more sophisticated way. I think that we have a new episode maybe for season six, uh, uh, all about generative AI and these first-year composition courses. Maybe we can uh, invite you back to hear about some of these experiments that are going to be going on. We'd love that. So speaking of doing things intentionally, I think one of the things that Michelle touches on is just their intentionality and how well thought out these courses are and kind of how they're using the ideas of principled innovation in their courses, which really the core of that to me is intentionality. What's principled innovation? No, I want to <laughs> you should have you would ask. <laughs> so principled innovation is the ability to imagine new concepts, catalyze ideas and form new solutions guided by principles that create positive change for humanity. The question is, we can innovate, but should we? Which really gets back to that intentionality. Where, what, where does this come from? Oh, this comes from ASU. Oh, yeah. We totally branded this. Thing. It's, yeah, a, this it's is, an ASU oh, yeah. branded thing. Registered trademark. Maybe know. not trademark. I don't know. What's the circle around the R? That's what it has. Mm-hmm. Registered. Registered, yeah. Done. Registered. Uh, I was going to say, I don't know if you've heard this, but ASU is number one in innovation. <laughs> How many nine years in a row? years going oh, now. Nice. We were on eight infinity last year. Yeah. But what's interesting about this is that it it really breaks down into kind of four areas, uh, moral, civic, intellectual and performance. I won't necessarily get into the nitty gritty about what all this means. No, we'll put a link. You guys can get into nitty gritty. There's an entire website dedicated to the PI process. Yeah, there's a lot of great information there. But uh, so much of that is thinking about these four areas in terms of how you're intentionally integrating those into your courses and really what that means for students when they leave here. ASU is really committed to not just making you a good student, but a good, well-rounded human being on the planet who's thinking about the world around you and not just not just what's in front of you, but just what's out there and beyond. What a novel idea. Yeah, shout out to the Mary Lou Fulton's Teacher College for putting that all together. So let's switch gears a little bit, and I want to talk about some of the other really special things outside of the curriculum that take place in these first-year composition courses. And John, I'd like to start with you and hear a little bit about your work with the writing mentors, because I'm sure that that phrase is unfamiliar to many of our listeners, and then talk about their, their work in the platform Inscribe. 
Sure. Yeah. So, you know, the, the term writing mentor has gone through many different variations. I think they're called writing fellows at one point. It wouldn't be such a stretch to, to even refer to them as TAs or tutors. But what our writing mentors are, as I mentioned earlier, they're course embedded peer tutors. So, you know, in the writer's studio, we have, what, 100 faculty members or so across all different Canvas shells, but they're all teaching the same curriculum. And they all have a writing mentor that's assigned to the course as well, who works with both the faculty and the students. They're there for peer support, things like just answering questions, you know, monitoring and grading discussion and peer review assignments, you know, holding drop-in labs where students can come in and ask questions about assignments that are giving them trouble. They'll hold workshops where the students, you know, they can come and work over Zoom uh, for one-on-one help with their with their papers synchronously in real time. So they're just a really great resource and a really a big part of what makes the Writer Studio so special. Now, as part of the design changes we've made over the last three years, we have integrated a community and communication platform called Inscribe into our courses. What we used to have, and anybody that's familiar with the Canvas course will know about the discussions, and we used to have a community forum in every course where students would just be able to post a question and then the writing mentor or instructor would get back to them. But we found those were hardly ever used. You know, just imagine a room full of cobwebs or a tumbleweed drifting across, you know, a barren landscape. Um, you'd get maybe a question or two. It was clear that there's more questions out there than that, but that wasn't the right format for for those questions and to help those students. So what Inscribe does is it serves as kind of a digital study hall where 24 hours a day, you know, we have a team of almost 100 writing mentors as well who monitor this platform. Students can post questions anytime they want. And within 24 hours, any any number of writing mentors, you can get two, three, four responses. We'll, we'll get back to that student. You get a lot of stuff, you know, like, what was the due date for this? Or where do I find that? But you get a lot of, you know, interesting questions too. Like, is, is this topic, you know, appropriate? Or I'm, I'm having trouble finding someone to interview. And our writing mentors are, they're amazing people. They're predominantly undergraduate peer tutors. A lot of them come directly from the writer studio. Michael, like you did. Um, we'll have instructors reach out and say, hey, you were such a great student. Why don't you apply to, to be a writing mentor? So we have... I would say it's close to 50% of our writing mentors came directly from the writer's studio, but we also recruit through Barrett, through you know the English department newsletter, things like that. Mostly undergrads, some, some graduate students, but they're all very high achieving students. They've succeeded in their first year composition courses, and they're just here to, to help students. And Inscribe has really helped really connect our students and our writing mentors in ways that was needed and weren't, wasn't there before. And John, how many writing mentors are there in each class section? Between 101 and 102, I think there's around 40-ish uh, in each in each course. And then we just have a small handful. Uh, Sean can attest there's not a, a large 105 population, but we do have a handful, maybe two or three or four uh, 105 writing mentors. But is it true that every single course has a instructor and a writing mentor with them? Yes. One to sometimes two writing mentors. Which I think that ratio, when we think about our high enrolling courses at a huge university like ASU, that instructor to student ratio is incredibly special and incredibly intentional. Michelle, was there anything you want to add? I know you were very instrumental in kind of getting this program off the ground. Yeah. Well, I think I know there was talk earlier about high impact practices and peer-to-peer learning is so important for that. Just like when we ask students to evaluate or give feedback on each other's writing, the process of giving feedback improves student learning. And so these kinds of relationships are valuable for everybody involved. The students who are, are, you know, in the class getting support from their peer tutor, their writing mentor, the peer tutor themselves learn so much throughout the process. 
And, you know, we've had students stay on for a master's program, stay in the program as a writing mentor throughout their master's. And then even the faculty member, I think, often benefits so much from working with the writing mentor because it gives them an opportunity to see the class from a student's perspective. And so it's just really a wonderful community building program that we have. And, and I just want to add one more thing and then I'll let John take over, but I don't know if there's any other or any, any uh, program that's quite as large as ours that provides this kind of opportunity for ASU online students to work for ASU, right? And then to be part of a community of students in the way that our writing mentors are, who are, as John said, predominantly ASU online students. I was just going to say, Michelle, you mentioned, you know, community building relationships. We have a number of faculty members who started out as, as writing mentors, right? Yes, we do, actually, who are getting their master's at the time. And instructional designers. And instructional designers, yeah. Our reach extends broadly. <laughs> and just to quickly add to that, I love how um, many of the writing mentors come from uh, multiple disciplines, too. I have a lot of uh, right. past writing mentors who are STEM students, um, and they've you know gone into engineering, for example. And that's a, such a cool perspective to bring, especially for our STEM students in the courses who might not think, oh, I don't need to learn how to you know write or communicate in this way. It's actually almost a surprise when we have English majors who <laughs> apply. It's like, oh, you're, they're still they're still out there. Okay, cool. Yeah. <laughs> Mentoring, the writing mentorship. Yeah. What is that like? You were one. It is a special, special role. So as the writing mentor, you're working one-on-one with a faculty in your classroom of about 25 to 35 students, just kind of depending on how long you've been a writing mentor. And really what you're there to do, again, is to primarily answer any student questions that are coming in uh, about the general course curriculum and content and how to navigate and things like that. They also really engage with students on any discussion assignments to make sure that they feel that there is that instructor presence within the course as well. So not only that peer-to-peer interaction, but that peer-to-instructor interaction as well. And then before the students are working on their their major project, their major writing project within the course, the mentors also host what are called revision workshops. And these are one-hour workshops where students can sign up, and they now actually offer them asynchronously as well um, for students like me who couldn't uh, find a time to to meet with someone else. But these these workshops are one hour to get to meet with somebody for the student who goes through a training twice a year about this course, about the content, about the curriculum, and really knows the assignments really, really well. So we would never discourage a student from going to the ASU Writing Center because they are also phenomenally helpful. But the writing mentors are specifically trained in the type of writing and the type of projects students are working on within these courses. So they're really a great go-to. Uh, and again, being that peer model, we, we wanted it to hopefully decrease some of that pressure of it's not a TA, you know, nothing official or scary like that. It's another peer. It's another student who's gone through this course and they, they understand what you're going through. Well, that's so nice because it's so horrifying to be like a brand new student who's like, I haven't written a paper in, say, 25 years. Um, And then to be able to go to a peer instead of your really super scary, although secretly really nice faculty member, but they seem super scary and get that feedback from another student. It's so less like intimidating. So that's really cool. And it, it also since there's students who've gone through the course, it's that sense of like, look, I've come out the other side. You will too. 
And it's such a benefit to our online students, you know, to be able to get a job at the university, like that is huge. And it doesn't happen very often for online students, right? And then also to be able to develop those connections, not only with other online students, but with instructors and with those coordinators, right? And they're developing those mentor relationships that again, are going to help them get those recommendation letters and things that again, are very challenging for students in online environments to often get. Well, I'm, the thing that I'd like to highlight is this uh, new character that Liz has come up with, this Southern woman yeah. who's returning back to school. 25 years. Well, I haven't heard of a right assessment. And why say 25 years? <laughs> I haven't prospect. touched a word processor in I don't know how long. Well, I never. <laughs> so before we move on, I want to talk a little bit more about Inscribe, because that's a new platform that is uh, becoming really popular in a lot of our online courses. And one of the cool things that I know that changes that we made was rather than, you know, in that community forum model, it was the, what, 25, 30 students and the writing, the writing mentor alone in that community forum. John, tell us a little bit about what's different with Inscribe. Sure. So Inscribe is, you know, it's available 24-7 and that really, really helps serve our student population. You know, as Michelle mentioned earlier, we have a very diverse population. It's not just all, you know, 18 to 20 year old, you know, first time college students. We have uh, returning students, you know, who uh, work a nine to five job. We have military students who are stationed in Hawaii or Japan or Germany, um, you know, stay at home parents, um, just students from from across the globe. So, you know, if you just consider a typical teacher or writing mentor, you know, it's not quite a nine to five, but, you know, yeah, business hours, right? But with Inscribe, and we do have mentors that are from across the globe as well, and they're available, you know, 24-7. So if a, a student gets off of a shift at work at, at five, they make dinner, then they get to their homework, it's nine or 10, and they post a question, it could, they could get a response, you know, before they go to bed that night. Or a student in Hawaii that's, it's 6 a.m. Arizona time, there's going to be somebody, you know, keeping track and, and hopping on to, to help them out. And even if it's not one of our uh, writing mentors who's there responding to questions, it might be a peer who has the answer to that question. And one thing that John uh, worked on over the last few years was, and I think Sean was involved in this process too, was collecting resources and building those resources into Inscribe so that even if the student can't get an answer immediately to their question, they can search within Inscribe for resources that we have generated for them, created for them to help them potentially solve the question at hand. Yeah. You know, how do I cite an APA? How do I write a thesis statement? What's the difference between primary and secondary research? So we have, you know, resources built into Inscribe uh, that also link out to places like, you know, Purdue OWL or just other helpful websites uh, that are out there. So there's not only active engagement from their peers and from writing mentors, but there's just static built-in resources as well. And they're a lot easier to access than the typical FAQ, you know, because it's powered by AI to yes. help students get to those answers. And I just wanted to add also that this has been a game changer for work-life balance and just wellness in general for us, because I used to make myself way too available for students. And it has been helpful for me to be able to firmly, but, you know, confidently step back and say, there are resources for you. I'll be back tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, Sean. And what I was going to say, you know, I was one of those students getting my degree where I was working three jobs, doing a full-time student load. So I was working, you know, 90 hours a week. So there were not, I hope they all were asleep by the time that I was online doing homework. But, you know, Sean, you touched on that AI piece of it, which I think is so helpful within Inscribe too, because basically what it does is as a student starts to type their question, Inscribe's artificial intelligence is going to be reading that, right? And so we, we pre-populate Inscribe with these FAQs based off of commonly asked questions. And so that 
that way, the AI is able to prompt and respond back to a student, typically giving them the answer, right? And so what's so great is I spent a lot of time going through the inscribed data and what we see, no matter what course that we've added this into time and time again, the number of views far exceeds the number of posts. And that's not always the case in the community forum, right? And so what we're seeing is that Inscribe not only allows students to be able to get their answer faster, but it also reduces the number of questions that students have to ask because they're already seeing that answer there. You know what I like about the Inscribe resources? Because I know like students could just go Google it, right? Like what, how do I cite APA? Google it. Well, what if they go to the wrong resource? Yeah. Right? So yeah. like that's what I like about that intentional resource curation that happens and creation as Michelle said like they're creating a lot of these things is that you know they're right. Yep. You know the students are getting the right feedback and the right like pathway. Yeah. And I think a lot of times when we've introduced this to faculty, there's always a little bit of resistance because it is more front work, right? So think through your community forum, what are those common questions that you've had? And then, you know, they pass those to be, we'll create the FAQ, make it pretty, and then put it into the inscribe for them. But they're the course experts, right? And so the cool thing is, though, once they've gone through and faculty have taught with inscribe for at least a session or so, they're on board because they have seen the reduction in the number of emails that they're getting from students, right? Mm-hmm. They've seen a dr- vast reduction in the number of duplicative posts because if you're using a Canvas you know, discussion forum for all of your students, they're not going to sit there and read every single line to try and find an answer. They're just going to put a new question at the top, right? And so in the end, it really does decrease the faculty workload of trying to manage those same questions that, again, always are going to come up in their courses. But again, I think biggest benefit is obviously to our students to have that 24-7 support, both through AI, their peers, and the writing mentors in the course. Yeah, I mean, I think we did the kind of like stats on it, and it reduced the amount of time that students waited for an answer to like five minutes. Wow. Like, yeah. what's what's cool about Inscribe is it gives you that data, first of all, but to see a question that might have taken 48 hours to get a response to that's, you know, 24 to 48 hours is the typical like, oh, you'll get an email from me in this time. Students were getting answers in five minutes. That was on the long end. On the other hand, or on the short side, it was like, a minute. That's crazy because even in a classroom, like a large lecture hall, you could take far more than five minutes to get a question answered if you needed individual care. When what I always say is that what we see, especially with that AI that is, again, as students are starting to type their question, Inscribe's AI is going to push suggestions mm-hmm. you know, to them, right? And so, so often a student's question is answered before they even finish asking it. So cool. And like that, I think, is a mind-blowing piece. And again, when we think about who our students are, and again, I was one of those students, right, where I was working three jobs. I did not have time to wait 48 hours to get a response back. Now, hopefully I was working ahead, so I wasn't on that time pressure, but maybe, maybe not. But if not, being able to go in and in that moment when I am doing homework online at 4 a.m. and it's due the next day, but I have to work both of my jobs, to be able to get that quick answer, that is key to be able to scale and still have that really impactful, authentic online classroom community. Well, and that kind of support is going to like greatly reduce your like anxiety as well. Because I know for me, if I am freaking out about something that is all consuming and I can't get my work done because I'm so anxious about figuring out if I'm doing it right. And then the, well, should I do it all now and then fix it later when I get the answer? Or should I just wait? Like, how is my time going to be best spent? And then to skip all of that, you know, spiraling. It's amazing. (laughs) 
So as we wrap up our conversation today, I wanted to talk a little bit about what was so unique about your course redesign process. Because I think a lot of times when we hear the phrase course redesign, we think curriculum, and then we think user experience, right? But there's so much more that goes into a student's educational experience, especially maybe online, right? Um, there are things like, what are they dealing with outside of school? There are things like, do they know how to get in contact with their academic advisor? There are all sorts of challenges that these students face. And so when you take a systems design approach, or sometimes it's called a learning engineering approach, you're really looking at all the spokes in the wheel and not just one or two areas of improvement. And so one of the things that my team really tried to do and help out was to think about what are some of these other things that exist within the university that we can bring into the work that we're already doing collaboratively to extend the knowledge about what's going on and what's so unique in these courses to all those support instances. So you know, one of the things uh, that I think is also really unique about ASU Online is our Success Coaching Center. And I know that y'all have had some success coaches on recently, but, you know, they are one-to-one with students as well and just there to provide any sort of guidance for them. And so one of the first things that we did when we were going into this redesign is we hosted a listening session with the senior success coaches. They are literally talking to students 40 hours a week, right? So they are getting all of the good information about what's working, what's not working, what are the challenges. And so we were able to take that information and really digest some of that and make that to be some of those priorities for the redesign. So it's not just, you know, what do the subject matter experts think? And then what do some of the instructional design experts think? But what do our students think about their experience? Then how do we then frame that within the work that we're all doing? So I think that was one really unique aspect that, you know, the systems design approach brought into it. One of the other things I just mentioned with Inscribe is data. And I have grown to really love living in data, and I spent a lot of time with the Writer Studio data, but one of the other really powerful pieces that allowed us to make data-informed redesign decisions was what we got from Inscribe. Because again, all of those student questions, I get that in an Excel spreadsheet, right? And so we went through, we coded those, we found the themes, and then we took that back to those subject matter experts, right? To the faculty coordinators and said, hey, here are what students are commonly having questions about common challenges in the course, how can we build some of that into the redesign so that way we're addressing those questions through the design and hopefully eliminating the need to even ask those questions. So I think that was something kind of special in the approach. And then, Sean, I know you did a lot of work over the past couple of summers with designing extra support resources. We talked a little bit about the student-facing resources for Inscribe, but last summer you spent a lot of time working on faculty resources and helping them be better too. Do you mind touching on that a little bit? Yes, we definitely spent a lot of time previously working on student facing, as you said, but um, it was really nice change of pace to switch focus on, you know, our faculty, especially for new faculty, as Michelle and everyone else has touched on today. What we do is a little bit different than what others are expecting, maybe when they maybe just start with us, much like much like the students might come into our course and expect one thing and experience a totally different one. Uh, we have to help that faculty, those faculty members kind of get up to speed really quickly because as you mentioned earlier, Michael, these courses move quickly as well. And they're just kind of thrown in um, and have to hit the ground running. So I think it's been extremely helpful for that. And having the data that you've uncovered through that process helped us focus on where it was needed perhaps the most because we could go on and on for years creating resources probably. <laughs> yeah, no, that they did a fantastic job. One of the challenges with scale is that we often ha- have to hire a lot of folks rapidly, right? To, to keep up with enrollment demand. 
what we did this summer that Sean contributed to is really revamp our faculty Canvas site and really expand our onboarding offerings to, to new faculty, again, as a way to continue to be able to provide high quality teaching at scale so that when, when faculty are coming into the program, we can get them quickly up to speed and they have the resources available that they need as they get acclimated to our curriculum. Which, by the way, I don't know if we highlighted this before, but we do have a shared curriculum across our program. So faculty are teaching the same assignments. And I think that was one of the things that was so important to us as we went into this three-year design process was to make sure that we included faculty and faculty's perspectives and contributions into the redesign of the curriculum. And Sean has been one of the faculty who's been very instrumental in, in bringing in that perspective as somebody who's really, you know, doing a lot of teaching and, and, and having a lot of, you know, student encounters every semester. Well, I, I just wanted to add that one of our biggest goals this last summer was to make your job a lot easier because as our program grows, <laughs> so do your responsibilities. So we wanted to, you know, just like with Inscribe, we've heard the student questions, we were hoping to do the same for you and the faculty questions. So hopefully it, it has helped so far. Yes, I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Well, that's why I think, you know, this whole holistic redesign process has been so unique and so special. And, uh, you know, everybody from the program lead to the faculty coordinators to individual faculty members who are writing mentors to instructional designers to the Ed Plus marketing team to our success coaches to our data teams. There have been so many individual contributions into this project that I think, again, it has made it really special and really successful for our students. And so, I'm so grateful to have been able to have been a part of it. And I'm so grateful that y'all took some time to come and share the story today. Before we head out, any last words, anything uh, anyone wanted to add? I just want to, again, highlight how important the data has been to us. We really, prior to this, did not have regular infusions of data into kind of our decision-making process. Our resources are thin in our program. And so having Michael be able to provide ongoing data to us so that we can make these informed decisions has been a very heavy load, but also invaluable for us as we moved through this process and hopefully as we continue to move through the process too. I would say also just that because writing is a recursive process, our revision is always in progress as well. We are always going to be continuing to make changes to use the data to work with our collaborators to continue to improve the student experience in the writer studio. So our, our revamp will continue uh, endlessly. And uh, I think as challenging as it might feel in the middle of the semester, especially in B sessions, um, it's so rewarding to get those student emails sometimes one or two or three years later that say, you know, this has changed my life. It's been, you know, I still think about that course all the time because how often do you hear that from a first year composition course? It's really exciting to see those. Well, and that's been probably my favorite part of working with the data is reading some of those qualitative surveys from the students, right, about what they have really enjoyed about the course. And yeah, maybe it was surprising and maybe it was challenging, but what they're taking away from it, right, and what they gained and how that's going to be able to support them, like we said, in their academic work, their personal professional lives as well. Awesome. Well, thank you again so much for taking some time and being here. Sean from Remote, we appreciate you zooming in and spending some time with us. Zach, John, Michelle, thank you so much for joining us in the studio. Any last words or anything you'd want to plug other than the things that we're going to add into our show notes? 
Uh, well, if anyone's interested, a colleague within the Writer's Studio and I and her daughter, we created the Health It's Personal podcast, where we speak with different uh, professionals, such as doctors, psychologists, and people who have personal experiences, people who've worked for you know, the EPA and stuff like that. Uh, it's been really cool to kind of sit down and talk to them about things that teenagers, young adults, and maybe new parents might want to know about, you know, informing their children or themselves about health related topics. But we kind of really have fun with that. And we go broad ranging with, you know, environmental health, for example, or, you know, lots of different tough topics that cover everything. And I got to be the very first guest and talk about my love for Christina Aguilera. So it doesn't get much better than that. <laughs> so if you want to hear more Michael's awesome radio voice. Yeah. <laughs> Well, this was a lot of fun. Thanks again for having us. I think if anyone's interested in learning more about grading contracts, there's a great issue that Zach and I have a piece in of the Journal of Writing Assessment from 2020. It was a special issue on grading contracts, which you should be able to find in the show notes. Perfect. Thanks, everybody. Okay. Well, that was such a great interview. And I want to again applaud you, Michael, for such a Great job in that interview. Phenomenal. Thank you all. Thank you for having me and for hosting me and for letting me talk to some of uh, my mentors and people that have been really impactful in my own life. Hey, anytime. It was great to just be a fly on the wall for that conversation. <laughs> yeah, so much, so much came up. I love that they were so open to having the AI question answered. Like they didn't, they didn't prepare for that. So that was really quite lovely to hear them off the cuff. Just, I mean, beautiful. Beautiful. The future is yeah. very bright in the writing studio. And the future is very bright for season five of Course Stories, and we look forward to uh, providing you listeners with more interesting conversations. And if people want to have an interesting conversation with us themselves, uh, how can they do that, Mary? Well, email us, coursestories at asu.edu. We are waiting with bated breath for y'all email. Mm-hmm. Oh, my dear, I can't. My lord. Oh, my, I'm having palpitations waiting <laughs> on these emails. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Course Stories is available wherever you listen to podcasts. You can reach us at coursestories at asu.edu. Course Stories is produced by the Instructional Design and New Media team at EdPlus at Arizona State University. If you're an instructor at ASU Online, tell us your course story and we may feature it in a future episode. Thanks for listening. Bye.